Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Leviticus 18, 1 through 5. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh your God. You shall not do according to what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do according to what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to do my judgments and keep my statutes to walk in them. I am Yahweh your God, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, with which if a man does them, he shall live. I am Yahweh. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today we ask that you would uh, enlighten our eyes, open our eyes and our ears, that we would be able to, to hear and see the truth of your word, Lord Jesus. And I pray that uh, we would be introspective in our own lives and in the world in which we live. Lord, uh, convict us if there are idols that we have in our own lives. And Father, uh, give us the courage to live for you in a world that is going increasingly uh, the wrong direction. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So today, given kind of the situation of being displaced from the conference center, we're all like uh, refugees today. And so I decided to continue. Today's sermon is kind of an intro into the next Revelation sermon that we're going to be doing, which is the church at Pergamum, okay? But it's also going to tie to what I taught last time and what Colton taught last week about the church at Corinth. It applies to both. And we're going to uh, go back and look at God's original instruction for his people, uh, Israel. So this passage I chose today in Leviticus 18 is to help in your minds and hearts, solidify the character of God, who God really is from the very beginning of time, uh, specifically what he wants and expects from his own people who bear his name. But God's word tells us that he's unchanging. That's one of his attributes. He's an unchanging God. There is no New Testament God and Old Testament God, which we see as a, is a, is a modern kind of... Uh, thing that's promoted among people in the church that in the Old Testament, God was wrath. In the New Testament, God is love. And very clearly, they have not read uh, the book of Revelation, if that's the position they hold. But the God of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the one and same God, and his character and nature is the same throughout the entirety of the Bible. Most people don't know a lot about Leviticus. It's not the go-to book that you want to go to and read if you're wanting some leisurely reading time in God's Word. Uh, this book is instruction for the, the Levitical priests of uh, Israel, and the purpose was so that they might lead the nation of Israel or the people of God in proper worship, how to worship God, all right? The whole book of Leviticus was given by God to Moses, all right? And, and he was supposed to impart this information, this revelation to the people of Israel. And this took place 
while they were encamped at the base or the foot of Mount Sinai. And I know you guys have read the story of Moses going up and, uh, and getting the Ten Commandments. So this was two years, as far as the timeline is concerned, this is two years after uh, their exodus from Egypt. And the Israelites are still a long way away from the promised land. They've got a long way to go. And at this point, they're living, as I said, at the base of Mount Sinai, encamped there. And this was the time period that this book of Leviticus was given to Moses in the first month. If you uh, look later, in the second month, they were given the book of Numbers by God. But this particular book, Leviticus specifically, was God's worship instructions for His newly redeemed people. And they had been redeemed out of the slavery of Egypt. We all have probably seen the Ten Commandments or you've seen the Prince of Egypt or possibly you've read the story in the Bible, right? And uh, they had been rescued after 400 years of indentured captivity to the Egyptians. And they weren't only rescued from slavery, they were actually rescued from something more. uh, And that was the Egyptians' pagan culture. Like the the Egyptians were absolutely wicked in their culture. God, we know, used the plagues and the judgments were set against the gods of Egypt. If you recall that passage we read the last few times that God was proving himself. He was judging the gods that the Egyptians were worshiping. And of course, some of the Israelites had taken part in that uh, idol worship. Uh, But God was doing so in order to convince Pharaoh as well to let his people go, but also to convince the Israelites to make a, a startling case, a shocking case that he is Yahweh, the God of Israel, and that he was uh, the only God that there is, the one true God. So the Israelites had been exposed to the wrong kind of worship, all right? They, this was their life. Uh, their concept of worship had become distorted because it was all wrong all around them. It was uh, perverted. It had gotten so far off track from what God had originally intended worship to be. What they had been exposed to was the worship, as we have learned, the worship of the demonic, okay? And their tendency as a people, even though God had been kind to them and led them out of that madness, out of that ridiculous idol worship, their tendency was to slip back into polytheism, which is uh, poly meaning many and theism meaning gods. They worshiped many gods and they slipped back into that. Their tendency was to revert back to Egypt's paganism. It was familiar to them. It was comfortable for them. And so that's why we see them, uh, the story of them fashioning a golden calf at the foot of Sinai, when Moses is still on the mountain with God receiving the Ten Commandments, and they're down there already creating an idol, a golden calf. Uh, They had received the law of God in the 20th chapter, but that didn't keep them from creating an idol in chapter 32. And God had made it clear that he would not permit his people to worship like the Egyptians worshiped, In addition, again, to the Egyptian idolatry was the level of the Egyptians' gross immorality. And it was off-the-charts immorality and wickedness. 
um, a quick scan. If you'll, if you got your Bibles in front of you and you have it open to the book of uh, Leviticus, you can look at chapter 18. You can just scan through that and you'll be disgusted by the instruction that God has to give to the Israelites uh, about the things that were once happening in Egypt all around the Israelites, the kinds of paganism and gross worship and immorality that was taking place. It was abhorrent. And God made it clear that he would not tolerate that brand of Egyptian immorality amongst his chosen people, okay? So again, God gave the revelation of the book of Leviticus to define what he requires as acceptable worship of him and to describe for his people what is an acceptable way of living. And it's all really carefully laid out in the book of Leviticus, so there's no question. The first seven chapters of Leviticus describe the sacrifices that the Israelites are to offer to God. Over 125 times in chapters 1 through 16, the people are told they're charged uh, to be pure. They are to be pure and set apart. And God simultaneously corrects them for their impurity along the way. The beginning section of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 16, are all about purity. And it covers confronting sin, repenting, and how to offer, as I said before, acceptable sacrifices to God. Then from chapter 17 through 27, they are instructed on the issues of how each person should live holy lives. So not only pure, but holy, which means you're set apart and you reflect in your life and you're living the nature of God. It clarifies what is acceptable and what's unacceptable in their everyday lives. So in chapter 18, we're obviously in the section uh, giving instruction on how each person should live a holy life. And the core of the matter uh, that's being addressed here is, be holy for I am holy, says Yahweh. And that's said about 50 times in the book of Leviticus. Be holy as I am holy. Holiness is expected of the people who bear his name. God says, I am holy. I am the one and only Yahweh. And because you are my people, because you bear my name, you must be holy as well. As many as 2 million people had been freed from Egypt's slavery and they had been rescued from their enemy by the power of God. We know the story, the miraculous things that God did. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So they rested in God's might and God's strength and God delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. He fought for them. The Red Sea parted. They went through on dry land. God drowned the forces of Pharaoh and he won his people. He purchased his people. They were his, his own possession. So here God brings them to this mountain. He gives them this new revelation, the law. And now in this book, all of this new instruction for worship, okay? And I think chapter 18 sums it up so well. If you look at verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh, your God. So here is God making it clear, I have called you out from among the pagans, those who worshiped false deities, those who in reality were worshiping demons. And he says, but I am your God. 
I am your God. You don't have anything to do with these other false deities. Remember, we covered in Deuteronomy uh, 32, 8 and 9, it says, remember when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. And it's speaking of the Tower of Babel and he scattered them out. And it says he separated the sons of mankind. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Verse 9, for the Lord's portion, he's making it clear, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. So what did God change Jacob's name to? Israel. So when it talks about Jacob, we see when it talks about the tribulation, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. So it's referencing Israel being his portion and his inheritance. He makes it very clear. He had called them out. He had set them aside, not because Israel proved in any way to be worthy. In fact, the same way that you and I have proven to be unworthy ourselves, that there's nothing in and of ourselves that we can do to, um, to earn the, 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 uh, to be in the presence of God, okay? There's nothing we can do to achieve that level of holiness that God requires. So we've all fallen short. Israel's the same way. Israel was never, ever faithful, but God called them out because he wanted a people for his own possession, for his inheritance, and restoring Israel time and time again, over and over and over again, was all about God's faithfulness and God's glory. And, and he wanted Israel to be an example to the nations that I have chosen these people, I have made them my own possession, they are my inheritance, and I will follow through and I will keep my word. And that's what he's saying here to Israel. You are mine. And because you are mine, you are a peculiar people. You are different, you are holy, and you are set apart from the rest of the world. Look at verse 3 in chapter 18. You shall not do according to what is done in the land of Egypt where you live. So he's pointing back to the past. And he's saying all that stuff that you were accustomed to back there, that all that stuff that was going on around you, you're not to do that any longer. There's only one true God. You are now monotheists. You are serving and, and worshiping one God and one God alone. You cannot behave the way the Egyptians behaved. It's absolutely unacceptable for uh, an Israelite who bears the name of God. But look at the second part of the verse here. He says, nor are you to do according to what is done or what will be done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. So now he, he points to the future. So he pointed to the past and the paganism that took place in the past. Now he's pointing to where he's going to take them saying you can't act like them either. You understand you're peculiar, you're different, I've set you apart. And uh, God's saying, you know, you cannot revert back to the paganism of the past, the old ways, as in Egypt. But in addition, when you go forward, you're going to come against new paganism, new shiny gods, new ways of thinking about worship, and you must resist that as well. And that's the, that's the practices of the Canaanites. So, again... There's the old form of paganism that you must reject, but there's also a new form of paganism that you must resist. Leviticus lays this all out, and I'm not going to read it out loud because uh, we have some young ears here, and that's y'all can read through that on your own, and you can make those, uh, those uh, take that time with your kiddos and, 
and lay that all out as you deem appropriate as a parent. But I will say this, if, you're, if you've got chapter 18 in front of you, uh, you can scan through it, as I said before, for context. And I would definitely tell you to read it. And I just want to point out a few things in, a, in sort of a veiled way, and I think you guys will be able to pick up what I'm putting down, okay? Um, you'll see in verse 6, he's referring back to the lack of apparel, okay? The lack of apparel. And you see it again three times in verse 7. You see it twice in verse 8. And it just keeps being repeated over and over all the way down to verse 20 where it comes right out and gives the context. It actually tells you what it's talking about when it's talking about the lack of apparel. It's talking about this inappropriate relationship. And very similar to in Genesis when we read that Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore a son. Same kind of veiled truth there. You know what it's talking about. Um, and so it's that kind of knowing that the lack of apparel describes. And when you consider that and you go back and read God's instruction, if that's not bad enough, in verse 21, he instructs, you shall not give any of your seed to pass them over to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God, for I am Yahweh. Now, in other words, do not give your children to the idol Molech. And what that meant was child sacrifice. They would have this bronze statue of this God, this bull, bull-shaped God with arms out like this, and they would build a fire in its belly and just heat it up as, as hot as they could get it, and they would actually put their children on the hands of that burning altar. And that's the kind of thing that those pagans engaged in, and God's saying, you are to have nothing to do with that. And he's telling them, being very clear, don't do it. And, um, I mean, look, how is it any different than our modern-day holocaust of abortion? It's the same story, those same paganistic demon, demonic sins that keep repackaging themselves and coming back to the forefront in culture and in society. Every single thing that they did back then as pagans we see fleshing out in our society. It describes males and other males in an improper fashion. It's an abomination, it says. Then it describes the misuse of their animals in an abominable way. And so you begin to understand as you read through this how very wicked and perverse the Egyptians were. And that was the cultural norm surrounding the Israelites in Egypt, okay? Verse 24, uh, God says, don't defile yourself by any of these things, for by all these, the nations, so remember, any other <coughs> nation, excuse me, any other nation that was not Israel was called the nations, referred to as the nations, and God's telling them they've defiled themselves in all of these ways, and you are not to do that, all right? Uh, because they've been defiled, and you can't do it, or else you'll be defiled, in, verse, uh, in chapter 19, two, 19, verse 2, it says, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. So this, again, you guys, is a call for separation. Come out from among them. You are not to be the same. It's a call to be peculiar. And this standard has always been God's standard for His people. Bottom line is that we are to be different. The standard is still in place for His church. If you want to jot this down, James 4.4, 4, when you look in the New Testament in James 4.4, 4, we see this same standard. 
It says friendship with the world is hostility toward God. To be friends with the world and to cozy up with the things of this world is to be hostile, belligerent, rebellious in the face of God. And in 1 John 2.15, 1 John 2.15, it says, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, let me just say this. I think we all live in the tension of trying to really understand and know what it means to love the things of the world. Because I know in my heart, I don't want to have anything to do with loving the things of the world. I think sometimes the question is, in Christian liberty and Christian freedom, what things are uh, considered loving the world and what things are not? So should we all you know, wear the same clothing and cover our heads and move out in the country and become, you know, like uh, farmers and, you know, and never go around society and shun electricity and all that stuff. Is that what's expected of us? Probably not. Because you're coming out of the world to the degree, to the degree that you're not a witness to anyone in the world. But when the, the things of the world become your passion and become the focus of your life and and you've kind of got God compartmentalized over here, and, and the main core and, and passion of your life is the pursuit of your own success or money or things or the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life, what's going to make me look good in front of other people. When our passions begin to uh, focus on those things, I think we're in real danger, real danger of loving the things of the world. And so we should always be on guard and live in that tension and, and ask the Lord all the time, is this, I mean, without being legalistic, <clears throat> is this a show that I should be watching? Is this music that I should be listening to? Is this something that I should be taking part in? Or am I acting too much like the world? When If I stood in a court of law and they were going to try to convict me of being a sold-out follower of Christ, would there be enough evidence in that courtroom to convict me, or would I look just like the rest of the world? You get what I'm saying? So it's throwing down the gauntlet for the believer. You cannot worship God and conduct yourself in a way that is friendly and accepting of the evil, paganistic, worldly system from which you've already been rescued. If you've been rescued out of that, why would you go back to that? That's the question being posed. And so Galatians 6.14, Paul says, I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. So he's, he's essentially saying, the world's dead to me. As far as the things and the love of this world, it's dead to me, and, and I'm dead to it, and I'm now living all of my passions, all of my purpose is wrapped up into doing what God has called me to do. And again, we can't impose our... Uh, own convictions on other believers, we pray for them. If you impose your, uh, your convictions on other believers, that's called legalism. You're expecting them to live by your standard when in Christian liber liberty, they all have to come to those conclusions in the power of the Holy Spirit on their own. Um, but bottom line, we must come out of this world. And the problem is, unfortunately, that the church system has decided to adopt kind of these new shiny gods of Canaan. And I want to explain myself uh, a little bit and tell you what I mean. 
Uh, all of these things the Israelites were warned against in some form, as I said before, America has embraced them, all right? So you, maybe we don't put our children on an altar called Molech, but in the name of convenience, even more so, and in far higher numbers, uh, we, we uh, abort babies. And, uh, you know, again, we've embraced so much of, of the world. The church has flung the doors wide open and let the world inside of the church. And I will say this, the church opening the doors to the world and inviting the world in does not make, the church does not have the strength to make the world more godly. What always happens is that the world makes the church more worldly. That's the way it always happens. My granny used to say, you can't pull someone up a ladder, right? But you can sure pull them off the ladder. If you've got a rope between someone on a ladder and someone on the ground, the one on the ladder is always the one that's coming down. And that's the way we need to picture when we open the doors and let the world come into the church. So the church, as the church then becomes more like the world, we see the same perversion in the lives and homes of those claiming to be Christ followers. Has anybody seen the studies of the uh, abuse within the Catholic Church or the abuse within the Southern Baptist Church of late? It's the same kind of things, the same wickedness, gender immorality, family immorality, abuse, divorce. It all runs parallel in statistics as the world. We're living just like the world in our modern day lives. We see in the modern church system today, the church that's supposed to bear the name of Jesus Christ is working feverishly to be as much like our culture as possible. They're doing it on purpose. And instead of running away from the things that would defile us, they're actually uh, giving it place. Over the last 30 years, I've been witness to this transition taking place. And many of you guys, if you've grown up in the church, you've seen it as well. But I've been keenly attuned to the way the church was when I was a kid because my dad was a pastor and I was involved with everything that was going on in the church. And I've watched how the, the, the whole purpose and passion of the church has shifted. And what has happened is influential church leaders in the past decided that the way to reach the world was to become more like the world. And I've watched the trend of seeker-friendly services. How many of you guys have heard that phrase, seeker-friendly services, spread across the globe? And, and to be quite honest with you, most of my adult life, I have taken part in that kind of activity. I thought that that was the way to go about it. I was wrong, and I've since repented. Why would I repent of that? Because in the process, what I didn't know was that the gospel itself was being com compromised. It's not seeker-friendly, guys. It's sinner-friendly. It's sinner-friendly. And you're just opening the doors and accommodating whatever lifestyle they're engaged in outside the walls of the church, and you're inviting that within the walls of the church. So if the gospel is being preached, if the true gospel is being preached in a church, it should strike fear in the heart of an unrepentant sinner. It should bring them to their knees but this new brand of Christianity is affirming rather than convicting. It is sentimental and emotional instead of being theological, teaching who God is, his attributes, and why he deserves our reverence and, and us understanding how holy and infinite he is. 
it's become so informal that apparently anything goes and there's very little honor or respect uh, and it is void of the solemn fear of God. And we should have a solemn fear of God. I've used the example in the past, if you were to stand at the base of a volcano right when, it, when it's an erupting, and it's just, it's just a piece of rock with, right, with pressure and, and lava and all that in it, you were to stand and you were to feel the rumble under your feet and the, and the deafening noise as it explodes into the air, and it literally, half of the mountain just, just falls and, and crumbles into ash and rubble, and you're standing there, you would be in absolute terror and awe of the, the might and power and majesty of just a single volcano. But how much do we tremble and fear and honor and respect our God who is infinitely more powerful than a single volcano? Does that make sense to everyone? So we've gotten to this place where we're entertaining the flesh instead of edifying the spirit. And because the word of God is not being taught, the whole issue is people are being deceived because we're adopting this new, these new speculations and these new forms of knowledge that set themselves up against the knowledge, the true knowledge of God. We've er er erroneously believed that if we could only appeal to people in the same way that the world appeals to them, if we could emulate the entertainment culture of the world and do it as well in the church as they do it at a concert, right, or at some big event. And the question is, how did we get here? How did we get to this place where we've become so uh, enamored with entertaining people with the mechanisms of the world? Well, these currents have pushed the church in this direction, leaders who I would say got wise in their own eyes, they got too clever for the, uh, their own good, and they adopted worldly philosophies like pragmatism and uh, what's called utilitarianism, and it's essentially the end justifies the means, that if they deem that it works, then it has worth, and that's going to be what they do. So, um, after all, their philosophy is, is if you have a crowd in the church, um, if you, or rather, if you don't have a crowd, how can you reach anybody with the gospel? Seems like it makes sense, right? Um, but we have to remember that Christ said he will build his church, and it will be not from the cleverness of men, as Paul says, but it will be the power of God through the power of God and the gospel that Christ builds his church. So the idea that has been adopted is if it captures people's attention, it's good. And if it works, we're going to use it, even if it fails to be separation from the world, even if it looks like the world. So leaders in the church talk less about theology and more about their methodology. Instead of doctrine, they talk about strategy. I myself was required to go through a course called Advanced Strategic Planning, okay? And, and Advanced Strategic Planning was supposed to help us figure out how to reach more people by planning things out strategically ahead of time. And the problem with that is, where's the gospel, right? As we see this taking place, though, we have seen churches compromise. And I'm here to tell you today that we're going to see more and more churches uh, compromise. I want you to remember 
that there's his true church, there's the real true church, the church that he's building, and then there's this other visible church, this other thing, people who claim to be the church that may or may not be part of his true church, but they have already compromised to be more attractive. And the bottom line is, is once this world turns their sights on the church, as it's already beginning to do, these folks, they're not going to want to be persecuted. They're not going to want to be rejected and they're not going to want to be ignored. And there's a bottom line financially that they've got to pay the bills. So what do you think they're going to do? They're going to compromise in order to accommodate, not all of them, but, but the ones who are truly not following Christ are going to compromise in order to accommodate their budgets and make sure their bottom line is where it needs to be. They're going to fall in line with the expectations of the world and they will court the world by acting just like the world. And there's a major problem with this philosophy because there are, there are churches this morning right now that are drawing huge crowds and there will be millions that walk in those doors spiritually dead and they are bound for an eternity without Christ, an eternal separation for, from God, headed for hell. And these churches will sing a song and entertain them. They'll tell them that they're good enough. They'll tell them that they're worthy. They will tell them that Jesus loves them right where they are, right? Right there in the midst of their sin. They will not hear the clearly communicated true gospel of Jesus Christ the gospel that they are actually eternally desperate for, they desperately need it, and they'll walk out the doors on an emotional high, but still headed for the eternal depths of hell. And that will happen in buildings all across the nation and the world today, every single Sunday. So what, what must we do in light of this? Well, first of all, we're not, we're not church bashing. We don't want to church bash. What I want to do is I want you guys all to be aware of what's happening in our world and what's happening in our culture and in our country and especially in the church culture. What must we do? We have to understand that Christ designed worship for his church. He designed it. He dictated how we are to worship in his word. And the call for true believers is to be completely separated from the way the world operates. That's not our business. We were bought with a price. We are His. We do not act the way they do. We do not say the things they do. We don't speak in the same ways. We do not chase the things they chase. Their passions are not the same as our passions. We don't even dress the way that they dress, or at least we shouldn't, and we certainly don't think the way they think because their thinking is all tied up in their fleshly passions Whereas the true follower of Christ thinks biblically. When we think, we think in scripture, in scriptural terms. And if you don't think in scriptural terms, then I would suggest really making an effort to read God's word more and you'll get in a situation and realize uh, that, wow, uh, I used to think this way, but now because I've read the word of God and I understand what it means and what it's saying, and how it's dictating that I should live my life, you actually begin to think in Scripture, and then you begin to act out Scripture in your own life, the way God designed it. So this world should be an alien environment for us, and the church, here's the hard part, the church should be an exclusive and alien type of thing to anyone who is lost in their sin to the world. When they come in our midst and they see us singing these 
weird songs and acting the way we do, they should feel like there's something otherworldly, something there that they are in desperate need of. But if we act just like the world, it just becomes another entertainment venue for them. And they walk away and, and get nothing out of it. The gospel must be preached. You and I, each and every one of you, each person here this morning, you have been called out from among them. You are Christ's own possession. He is yours and you are his. You are his inheritance, the Bible says. What, what do you think of when you get an inheritance? An inheritance is something you get later on. We are something that Christ will receive unto himself in eternity and we will be his possession. We are his inheritance. The human tendency is to follow after idols, to bow at the altar of convenience or the altar of comfort, to fall back into our old nature, the things we once loved before we knew Christ and we were enamored with all the, the shiny new uh, offerings that the world uh, so often tries to use to steal away our passions from Christ. It was the issue for the Israelites. It was definitely the issue for the church at Corinth as they were having difficulty coming out from among their pagan practices and rituals. And there will always be a clear and present danger to Christ's church here in our modern day and to each and every one of you personally. It's always going to be something that you struggle with as long as you're this side of heaven. And so you must be aware of it, cognizant of it. You must live in the tension of uh, often considering whether or not I am engaging in the practices of the world or whether or not this is something that truly honors God. Amen? We have no control over what anyone else does, but we as a local body... We as a local body, we will do as this passage says, we are going to keep God's statutes. We are going to uh, be aware and keep his judgments. And his promise here is that if you live in those, if you walk in those, you will have life. You will have a different sort of life that sets you apart. You will have an eternal perspective. You will have a peace that passes understanding. So even when the world looks crazy around us and things are crumbling all around us, we understand we have a peace and we know who God is and we're not fearful of what's going on around us. Amen. That's the peace that's available to each and every one of us. We in this church will be faithful to the word of God. We will always unashamedly, as long as I'm here and as long as I have breath, we will unashamedly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promise that he has given us is if we will do that, he will give life. He will give life. And that's the whole point. Amen.